Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks for being with us today. I just finished talking with Eric Hammerstrom about his new book, The Science of Chinese Buddhism, Early 20th Century Engagements. This came out in 2015 with Columbia University Press. Now, this is a book that takes on a really fascinating and really crucial period um, in the history of science and its engagement and entanglements in China. The book makes a really important point right at the beginning. In the, in the 1920s and early 1930s, science as an ideological entity was discussed widely in literate Chinese society, and that's um, in the words of the book. Now, it was discussed widely in society, not just by people who were taking advantage of the increased professionalization of the sciences, which was happening. It was discussed not just by people who are self-identifying as scientists. It's also discussed really interestingly, as Eric shows in the book, by a community of, by different communities, perhaps, of Chinese Buddhists. And what the book does is it takes us into writings that are emerging out of this intersection of simultaneously this professionalization of science, um, kind of debates around um, what, what's called superstition and its connection between science and religion in Buddhist circles, and also larger debates about kind of science and materialist explanations of life and the kind of practical and ethical consequences uh, for life, for how we think about what life is and what it can be um, of the rising engagement with modern sciences in China. So there's a lot in the book. It's a really focused, but really kind of cross-disciplinary um, genre crossing study that looks very carefully at some materials that those of you who are interested in the history of science and or are interested in the history of Buddhist um, thought and Buddhist writing might not otherwise know about and might not otherwise engage with. So this is a, a kind of one of the studies that's coming out um, in past years that's really excitingly bringing together history of science and history of religion in mutually informing and um, sort of really nourishing ways. And so this is a study for you if you're interested in that relationship um, between what we think of as and what has been articulated in terms of science and what we think of as and what has been articulated in terms of religion and really shows that they're part of a common conversation in this really fascinating period of Chinese history. So with that, I'll leave you to it. um, And just thank you so much for listening, for your support of the channel. um, And I hope you enjoy the conversation to come. Thanks so much. I'm here today to talk with Eric Hammerstrom about his new book, The Science of Chinese Buddhism. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Eric, and thanks so much both for writing a book that perfectly crosses the two fields that I work in. So yay, (laughs) science and China, and also for making time to talk with me about it today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm, I'm looking forward to this opportunity to talk about the book. Of course. So, Eric, let's start with the traditional first question for the channel. How did you come to work on China? What brought you to China as a field of inquiry? Yeah, so um, actually, I think I would bill myself as a scholar of East Asian Buddhism first. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of my my first, um, my first interest in the field. Um, my parents were interested in Buddhism when I was growing up. And so there was, you know, DT Suzuki and um, Philip Kaplow books around the house and things like that. Um, and so I, I, even when I got to start college, I knew I wanted to do something with uh, East Asian Buddhism. Um, so when I finished uh, undergrad, I, I moved to Korea um, because I, I had, you know, I kind of read about Korean Buddhism and I wanted to do that. But once I started grad school, you know, the, uh, it just kind of worked out that I kind of moved into China because that's the 
the the faculty who were available where I was going. Um, so, in general, like I, I think um, I've enjoyed working with uh, Chinese Buddhism, um, and I've definitely you know had a lot of training in that area. But my my primary kind of love academically is East Asian Buddhism as a whole. Um, so that's kind of how I. Uh, I guess that's that's kind of where I see myself. But, um, you know, given how training works in graduate school, right, like mm -hmm. I kind of, you know, when I, I, you kind of have to pick, right, mm -hmm. you can do a little but you kind of have to pick what country um, you're going to do. And, and China was what I ended up doing. Um, and I've been pretty happy there. But, um, yeah, so that's that's kind of how it happened. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. It yeah. totally makes sense. So the book um, is a work that you describe as an intellectual history that looks mm -hmm. carefully at, and here are the words of the book, what Chinese Buddhists thought about science in the first part of the 20th century and what they wrote in articles and in monographs devoted to the topic in the 1920s and the early 1930s. And there's a lot going on under that umbrella that we'll talk about. And there's some really, really fascinating stuff happening in this writing. But um, to kind of, before we get into the details, what brought you to this particular topic? How did you decide to work on this? Um, so I, it began as a dissertation project, right? That's correct, so yeah. Is yeah. in grad school, what brought you to this particular focus? Yeah, that's <laughs> kind, of, kind of the first question. I think there's, um, I mean, looking back, it kind of seems like a straight line, but uh, at the time, it seemed kind of like I was, you know, feeling my way uh, in the dark. Um, I, I, I did my PhD. I, I wrote this, uh, I mean, this originally comes out of the dissertation I wrote um, for my PhD at Indiana University. Um, and I was, uh, I briefly studied with uh, John McRae and Jen Nadier, but they were kind of in and out my first couple of years there when I was doing coursework. So I ended up doing a lot of work with um, uh, Robert Campany and Stephen Bokenkamp, who are medieval Taoist uh, experts. Um, so I was doing a lot of medieval kind of Buddhism and trying to kind of stay with the Buddhism, even though a lot of the coursework I was doing was Taoist related. Um, and partly because uh, Jan and John were kind of in and out during that period, uh, I took a year to just go to China and teach English during my PhD. So I kind of took a year off in the middle of the PhD program. Um, and while I was there, I, you know, I, I was able to get access to a couple local libraries and get access to some Chinese writings on Buddhism. And, and I, I, I was kind of gravitated toward the, the modern period. And I was reading, you know, what I could find on it. And I found that in a lot of the books, a lot of the writing by, by Chinese scholars, um, they would say things like in passing, like science was very important. And then they would continue, or, you know, science had a really big impact on, Taishu and his thinking. And then they would move on without really exploring that uh, particular question. So I thought, ah, this is, this is an area that, you know, I, I kind of, I feel like I, there's definitely something that needs to be said. And even the Chinese scholars aren't really doing much with it. Um, this was uh, about 10 years ago. Um, plus, I, growing up, I had a lot of interest in science. My father is an electrical engineer and a scientist. Um, so we watched a lot of uh, PBS programming growing up, Nova and things like that. Uh, so I, I kind of have this um, personal interest in science. I'm, I'm fascinated by scientific questions and scientific ideas. And so it seemed like a, a nice way to, to take that interest and kind of use it to answer some questions that I saw were not being addressed in, in this really interesting period of Chinese Buddhist development in the modern period. So how did you move the project from dissertation to book? Like, were there any major transformations in the shape of the project and how you were conceptualizing it or other kind of notable aspects of that change that you'd want to talk about? Yeah, I think the biggest, the biggest change was when I wrote the dissertation, I was kind of struggling and I, I'm guessing you and probably a lot of the listeners will, will understand this struggle uh, whether or not I was going to organize the dissertation chronologically or thematically. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's like, so, so I, I remember I had started writing it uh, thematically and I remember waking up really early one morning and sitting in this reading chair and just kind of sitting there um, 
you know, the sun's coming up and I wasn't ready to start working. I was sitting in the chair and I was just awake because um, I'm kind of a morning person. And I just kind of had this realization. I was like, okay, I'm going to write this dissertation chronologically. And this is how I'm going to do it. <laughs> so I did. Uh, and during the defense, one of my committee members said, you know, this is great. You may want to, if you're going to write for um, people who do science and religion, not just Buddhist scholars, not just historians of science, you may want to think about it doing thematically. <laughs> I was like, thank you. That's a great, uh, you know, I thought about it. So when I started reformulating the, the dissertation to be a monograph, um, I moved I moved back to thematic, partly because uh, the dissertation was really long. It was over 500 pages. Wow. Um, and, you know, I strategically, I kind of took some pieces of that and tried to publish them, you know, as articles, um, mm-hmm. you know, as I was working on it to, you know, for for the realities of, of you know, the academic job world. Um, and so that the, there was definitely some material that didn't need to make it into the, the book because it had been kind of, you know, peeled off and, and published elsewhere. Um, and so it, it seemed to start making more sense as a thematic, uh, as a thematic uh, piece. And the reviews, um, I have one very excellent, very thorough uh, outside reviewer. It was, you know, several pages, single spaced. And, you know, when you get that review, you know, one, one possible reaction is, oh, my God. Like after you write the book, but another, the reaction I had was like, Oh, thank, thank goodness. This person took so much time Mm -hmm. uh, with it. And that really, the comments that were made there helped kind of help me solidify the thematic structure that I finally settled on. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, So let's get into it. Let's get right kind of into the pages. So um, in the introduction, you open into an important historical claim of the study. Here it is. Ideas about the relationship between science and Buddhism that were, um, in the words of the book, hinted at during the late 1890s were fully developed in the 1920s into forms that endured through the 1940s. And so what's going to happen kind of early on in the book is the book's going to take us into important aspects of the historical context within which to understand um, the kind of uh, more thematic interventions that are going to happen later on in the book. And we'll get to that in a moment. But before we get to that, this period seems really important to you, right? The 1920s into specifically the early 1930s as the kind of core of the study. Now you talk early on about some of the most important kinds of sources that you worked with for the study and also the time span that you were working with. So primarily, um, as you, you know, say early on in the book, the book is based on writings that appeared in the Buddhist periodical press between 1923 and 1932. So mm-hmm. let's start by talking about that source base. For you, um, uh, what's important about this source base? Why this kind of source base, right, to get at the kinds of questions that you're interested in, and why this particular period, 1923 to 1922, as a time frame within which to do that? Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll address the, the question of the source base mm-hmm. uh, first. Um, but partly that was uh, uh, the the reason I chose to use that material was actually a largely a result of a, his, of a historical accident in my own history. Um, in that the the um, you know what we call the MFQ, the Mingguo Fuojiao Qikan Wenxin Jicheng, this massive collection of reprinted Buddhist periodicals um, was collected by Chinese scholars, and the first uh, the first series, which is over two hundred volumes, came out about the same year I, I was just doing my qualifying exams. Um, and then another series came out that was another close to hundred volumes. And there's since been a subsequent series. Um, these materials were really hard to get at. They were scattered around. There were single issues of a periodical from 1918 or something, you know, in one person's personal library. So the fact that all this material came out right when I was starting my, my dissertation research, um, I, 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 it was, uh, I didn't really have a choice. I mean, it was, it was such a huge uh, body of material, such a rich uh, treasury of material that, um, you know, I, I, I couldn't not use that as a focus. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, you know, try to look at uh, monographs and such and try to get a broader sense, but there's just, there's so much material there. I think we're only, you know, there's a number of scholars kind of working in this area, um, younger scholars uh, like myself, 
um, who've, who've taken this particular time period of Chinese Buddhism as a focus. And it's really been spurred in large part by the work of um, Huang Xianian and his team in China. Um, so it's really kind of a, a maybe kind of a global division of labor a little bit, right? I mean, like they did all this wonderful work to get this stuff put together in the mainland China. And then um, at the Dharma Drum Buddhist College in Taiwan, they created an online index of all the, every single title and author. And so there's been a lot of um, resources that have come out of East Asia that we have access to. So uh, it, it really, um, it was never a question for me that I was going to use it um, as the, the source base. So what I, what I tried to do is I just tried to find everything. I mean, I tried to find, think of every single keyword I could that was related to science um, evolution, biology, I, you know, and when I started to see patterns in the discourse, I'd look for other articles with those terms in the titles. And, um, you know, I collected this very large body of material. Um, so I basically started just trying to read everything, <laughs> which, <laughs> which, uh, now that I'm saying it, maybe seems a little like, uh, you know, uh, overly ambitious. Um, but, uh, luckily I was, a I was able to do a, work, a year of research as a Fulbright, scholar in Taiwan. So I had time and access um, to these collections at some, at some places there. And so based on all of what I read, then that's how I decided on this time period. So the time period wasn't, um, it wasn't, I'd like to say it wasn't my decision to say this was the time period. It was the material. Um, there's some writing on science and Buddhism that's happening in the late 19th century with the kind of explosion of science um, knowledge in China at the arsenals and, and, and various places. Um, but, but science as a, as a kind of ideological entity with this great cultural power, um, that doesn't really kick off until the twenties until like 1919 and the early twenties, um, not just among Buddhists, but as a whole, I mean, there's science as, a thing that people are studying, but in terms of its existence as this, um, this cultural force that doesn't happen until the twenties. So that's why I would, that I say that that's when the Buddhists start talking about it because, um, because it's just, it's everywhere. And so they're responding to it. And, and then by the thirties, um, by the mid thirties, the, the kind of acute, uh, nature of the discussions around science have started to recede. Um, there's, a lot going on philosophically, intellectually, but, but the, that kind of period of the discussion of science, what is this thing? What does it mean for us in China? That really is about a decade. Um, and so I find that that corresponds to the most like kind of, uh, creative period for Buddhists as well, because they're, you know, they're just like their countrymen, right? The, there are some really intellectual, Buddhists, some young Buddhists who are really interested in science, just like there are some young um, non-Buddhists, some intellectuals who are very interested in science. Right. And now the first chapter of the book really helps, helpfully takes us into kind of the broader context within which this is happening. And this is a context um, that's about these ideological debates around science. It's a context about the professionalization of science. It's a context also um, that locates us in terms of what's happening in Buddhist communities in this period. So mm -hmm. let's start with the first. Now this chapter, the first chapter, shows that there was what you call an ideological remaking of Chinese society in the 20s and 30s that drove widespread debates about the nature and scope of the sciences. And we've already mentioned 1923 as a kind of starting point, and this chapter locates that starting point really, really interestingly um, around a series of debates called the Science and Philosophy of Life Debates in 1923. So could you talk a little bit about those debates? We have 1923, right, as this crucial starting point. Um, for you, what's interesting for us to understand about these science and philosophy of life debates in order to appreciate um, what's going to come later? Yeah, I think one of those those uh, questions, Carla, where I'm, I'm still kind of so inside of it that it's like, well, of course, there's just so much going on. Where do I begin? <laughs> um, so I, I think, you know, it's, it's something that's been 
um, fairly noted by other um, other scholars. And so I'm, I think for me, I'm really kind of relying on um, the kind of broader scholarship in that period, um, mm-hmm. you know, to, 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 to kind of analyze this. What I see happening in the science and philosophy uh, life debates um, is... I mean, it, it, it is this this very public moment when some of the brightest minds of China are grappling uh, both with one another and with uh, this this notion of science at a as a totalizing discourse. Right. Um, um, Daniel Kwok talks about this in his book, The Rise of uh, or Scientism in China. Right. That there's there's actually now an option that that science could somehow replace all of the other modes of thinking, you know, philosophical modes, Mm -hmm. traditional Chinese modes of thought, like Confucianism. Um, It could somehow replace all those as the foundation for the the entire society. Mm -hmm. So there's quite a bit at stake here. There's obviously something at stake for the Buddhists, right? Because this doesn't include them. Um, Any it's, it's very much tied to a, uh, an atheistic, materialistic discourses coming out of the West, um, that, you know, uh, that come out of the Enlightenment, and so there's there's a lot at stake for lots of people. So it leads to these um, these rich discussions. I think the the argument that I would add about the philosophy of life debates, um, generally, when scholars study these debates, they kind of take the debates to mean the same thing as this collection. Um, of articles that Hu Shi uh, edited and put together. And he was one of the principal actors in this, or principal um, agents in these debates. But I, I want to think about that in a broader sense, right? They weren't just debates between a small circle of mostly Beijing-based intellectuals. It was actually reflective of larger discussions being had um, by people, by educated people all over the country. Um, and so... I want to expand that so we can include the Buddhists. We can include um, a, a, a wider variety of agents who are trying to address this question of um, what, what is going to be the basis for our new culture? What is going to be the basis for China? Uh, where are we going to look to find our values and our truths? Um, so they're, they're called the science and philosophy of life debates, but they're really kind of these really high stakes debate about um kind of the future of China. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you so much. Um, So for listeners who aren't uh, familiar, right, with this period, um, one of the really interesting things that happens here, and you tell us about this, right, right here in the chapter, is there's this lecture by Carson Cheng at Tsinghua University in which he's challenging students to abandon the belief that science can provide a coherent philosophy of life, right? And so um, there beca- so these debates revolve around the question of like whether life itself could be considered independent of this materialist world of the yeah. sciences, right? And this is happening in the context of this professionalization of the sciences. It's also happening in the context to sort of bring this to the Buddhist world here. It's happening in the context of anti-superstition campaigns. So Buddhists have a stake here in articulating their position, and you tell us about this in the first chapter, relative to not just science, right, this kind of term we've been talking about, but also to religion and to superstition. And in this context, um, you bring us into the founding of a couple of really important institutions that seem like um, at least one of them is worth talking a little bit about to lay the foundation for what comes next. So you bring us into the founding of the Jetavana Hermitage by Yang Wenhui which has a really great impact on Buddhist education. And this is followed by the founding by someone you've already mentioned, a Taishu, of something called the Wuchang Buddhist Seminary. And you make a point here that this seminary um, actually had a pretty strong impact on discussions of Buddhism and science. So for for listeners, what what is, um, again, kind of most important in your mind that we understand about the importance of this institution and in shaping the conversations we're going to explore um, in the chapters to come. Yeah, so the the Wuchang Fu Yuan um, 
I think what's important here, I, I, I'll, I'll start by saying um, when I started this project, I was hoping to discover that Taishu wasn't the center of the Buddhist universe in China, because <laughs> um, that's the kind of standard narrative. We, we've inherited kind of a great man um, way of talking about this period, Yang Wenhui and Taishu. Um, and what I found is that Taishu had a big impact <laughs> after all. Um, and so I try to give him his due. Um, one of the things, one of the places where he had that impact was uh, – you know, the Wuchang Fo Xuan was the first modern Buddhist seminary um, in China. Um, Yang Wenhui's seminary was fairly modern, but um, it, it didn't really have a chance to incorporate curricular changes the way that Taishu and the, the lay people who, um, who we worked with to found the Wuchang Fo Xuan uh, were able to do. So um, I think that the, the interesting thing for us is two re- the, the Wuchang Fo Xuan is interesting for two reasons. One, uh, curricular innovation, and two, um, uh, publication. So uh, on the one hand, uh, curricular innovation, um, Taishu was in part influenced by some uh, Japanese models um, he was also very much influenced by what was going on at the time to incorporate subjects like psychology uh, and sciences um, into the curriculum. And, and he didn't always teach these. He sometimes had uh, other people, lay people, um, come in and teach some of these subjects. But the classes and the work that the students did weren't just limited to the monastery, to the to the seminary, because the seminary was also associated with a periodical. You know, this is a joke for us who study this period that like, you know, you get five Buddhists together during this period. And the first thing they do is they draw up a manifesto and they start publishing periodical. (laughs) And and it maybe runs for two issues and then it ceases and their group, whatever it is, kind of ceases. But um, the Wuxiang Foshuyen was associated with the the longest running um, Buddhist periodical, the Hai Chao In, which is still uh, in publication in Taiwan today. And that was kind of a mouthpiece um, for the ideas happening at the seminary. Now, Taishu was only there for two years. Uh, he had a falling out with the, the board of directors um, because they wanted to bring in lay people and, he, and some other reasons. And he wanted to keep it kind of just for monastics. So he eventually left. Um, but the monastery continued to kind of run these seminars with the students um, where they pursued study of things like psychology. And often these were studied in conjunction with Buddhist doctrinal ideas. So um, at one of the later chapters, which I think we'll probably get to, um, they produce a lot about psychology and, and consciousness only thought. Um, and so they had a big impact through the publication. So the curricular changes led to these, um, these young monastics studying these ideas um, and some lay people. And then they were able to get a hearing for those through, through the publications. Great. So we actually get a sense as we move through the next chapters of some of the debates that are happening in these publications. And they're really, really interesting. So the second chapter looks at debates about and views of the physical universe. Now, the chapter describes the geocentric flat earth cosmology of Buddhist scripture and talks about the ways that Buddhist writers are trying to reconcile this flat earth geocentric cosmology of the scriptures with modern astronomy. Um, So can you talk, maybe this is a good place to start. Um, What did it look like to do that job of reconciliation? Like for you, what's most interesting about the ways that they were trying to reconcile what seemed to be, right, two completely opposing ways of thinking about and modeling and inhabiting the universe? I mean, there. Uh, I'll start by kind of maybe backing out just a little to say that like part of what was compelling them to do that was that the the proponents of scientism in China had inherited an anti-Christian discourse from the West, from scientists in the West, to bring up Galileo and the trial of Galileo as kind of the 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 example par excellence of religion inhibiting the development of science. And Chinese, you know, writers would bring this up: Galileo, Galileo, Galileo. You Buddhists are terrible. You know, just you're, you're just religion because you believe in flat Earth and. You're, you know, you would persecute Galileo if you could. Um, so I think that they had to do it. Um, they really had two options. One was they could ignore the issue or just say, yeah, well, that was wrong. Um, 
or they could try to um, kind of rehabilitate the scriptures. And that's the thing that I've seen repeatedly in this time period was um, the desire to find scriptural support for a contemporary scientific theory, which then that theory then will support the notion that the Buddhist scriptures are true. Right. So, um, so, you know, just watching some of the reinterpretation that, that had to be applied in order to make this happen. I I find that pretty interesting. Um, the creativity and the extent to which people at the time were able to incorporate new elements as they were being discovered. Right. So the discovery that the universe was expanding, right. Um, Hubble's observation of the redshift that happens during this period. And so, Buddhists start talking about kind of, oh, yeah, you know, the Buddhist scriptures talk about the size of the universe, right? And and Hubble discovered there are all these, like, you know, other galaxies, and, and this is what Buddhism talks about. Um, theories about kind of the formation of stars from nebulae, that gets kind of, things get found in the Buddhist scriptures that support those ideas later on. And so there's it's a kind of ongoing um, thing that is very... You know, there are some Buddhists who are quite attuned to what's being discovered in the Buddhist in the, the scientific world. Right. And the chapter really shows in many really fascinating ways, and we won't have time to talk in detail about these, but I just want to mention them, the ways in which these Buddhist writers are finding parallels between the descriptions of um, the physical matter, the de- descriptions of the physical universe and the world in the Buddhist canon, and those described by physics and relativity. And so there's this great um, discussion here of the ways that they're grappling with Einstein's theories, yeah. um, right? So, and, and the, uh, you make the point here that they're really taking up the fact that Einstein is showing that all empirically derived knowledge was subjective and depended on one's frame of reference. So if Einstein can overthrow Newton, so the argument goes, then that shows that scientific ways of understanding the world are only partial and can be overthrown by new theory. So there's really interesting yeah. <laughs> stuff going on here, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the other piece, right? So on the one hand, the Buddhists have to, like, I, I would say that there's kind of two levels they're, they're operating at when they um, talk about science, or there's probably a couple more. Um, but one is, you know, the, the basic facts of scientific discovery that are coming out, Buddhists don't really reject those, right? So they don't reject evolution. They don't reject the notion of a round earth. They don't reject these ideas, these kind of basic facts. They accept those, but they make methodological arguments against the the superiority of science. And Einstein is a big way they do that. Um, And as I point out in the book, what Chinese Buddhists are doing in the 1930s with Einstein is the same thing that uh, Buddhists and uh, a number of other people do today with quantum physics, right? It's, it's just a different branch of physics, but it's the same move, which is to say this particular theory says that in this circumstance, knowledge is relative. Therefore, all knowledge is relative. Therefore, like our tradition can be true and science can be limited, Right. So this is a it's a similar kind of rhetorical move that was being made then it is being made today. Just different kind of physics are being used. That's right. Now we see some more really interesting stuff happening in the next chapter, not in the realm necessarily of the physical universe, but in the realm of kind of the general um, approach to empiricism and verification. So chapter three looks at Chinese Buddhist efforts to challenge um, what the chapter calls the supremacy of scientific empiricism. And it looks at the ways that Chinese Buddhists are using the analytical tools of classic Buddhist logic to do this. So one of the really interesting things that's happening here is that these writers are claiming that there's actually some, there's some shared ground here, right? That um, modern sciences and Buddhist logic share um, an approach that prioritizes the verification of theories. Okay. Yeah. For, um, for those of us or for listeners who um, hear us saying the, the phrase Buddhist logic and are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. um, can you can you very briefly um, say a little bit about what is this Buddhist logic of which we speak? And um, for you, what's interesting about um, the way that these writers are trying to kind of create this middle ground between Buddhist logic and scientific logic? 
Um, so really briefly, uh, classical Buddhist logic, Hetu uh, Vidya, uh, the elucidation of causality um, or causes or even reasons, um, is a branch of uh, Buddhism that developed in India um, in the first couple centuries of the common era. Uh, it's, it's really important in Tibetan Buddhism. It's had a really important um, still plays a really important role within um, Tibetan Buddhist monastic education, but it never really caught on in China. It was introduced, um, you know, during the during the Tang Dynasty. I mean, introduced a little earlier, but kind of a more mature form was introduced in the Tang Dynasty. But it never really caught on uh, until logic from the West started to be valorized uh, in the early 20th century, and Buddhists returned to the traditions of of um, logic of their tradition. Uh, really, basically, Buddhist logic is, it's, it doesn't, it's a little different than kind of formal Western logic. The, the point of Buddhist logic is uh, in the context of debates. So a uh, debate where various debaters put forth propositions based on kind of um, accepted doctrines within Buddhism about uh, the existence of things or causal connections between A and B and so forth. And it's the, the logic is a way of kind of determining the, the, the basis, the kind of um, the evidence that is the basis for the particular claim. And then based on that, determining if it's a valid claim or not. Mm-hmm. So, um, so for, I mean, it, it really actually makes sense that Buddhists would apply this in talking with science because it developed in India in the context of inter and intra-sectarian debates um, and also, you know, debates between Buddhists and Hindus about what is truth, what's real, um, is there a Brahman, is there a self, these kind of things. So it was, it arose originally in the context of Buddhist debates against people who had different views of an opposing um, system of truth. And so the Buddhists deploy that in their discussion of science. Um, basically, they find science lacking, as you as you point out. I mean, they they say that science is based on a secondary kind of um, a secondary kind of uh, knowledge, and that is knowledge through inference, uh, anumana pramana, which is good, acceptable within Buddhism, but it's it's secondary to direct experience. So, um, the one classical example is. Uh, um, Anumana pramana would be to say, I see smoke over the fence, therefore I know there is fire, as opposed to seeing the fire directly yourself. That's pratyaksha pramana, and that's considered a higher form of knowledge. So for Buddhists, they said science is good, but it's all at the level of anumana pramana. It's this, this inferential knowledge. But what, what Buddhism can provide through meditation and spiritual cultivation is direct experience of truth and reality. Um, unfiltered by the discursive mind. And that's Pratyaksha Pramana. So they deployed those categories to say science is good, but it's not as good as what we've got. And that direct experience is like super direct experience, right? I mean, so another really, really interesting <laughs> point in this chapter is that, listen up, because you heard it here first, listeners, the Buddha <laughs> actually saw microorganisms, right? I mean, he yeah. was like, like the uber microbiologist in a way. And then um, I, I'm sort of, uh, you know, having fun with this, but not entirely. I mean, there is this claim, right, that the Buddha saw microorganisms. And I think anyone um, who's listening, who's familiar with perhaps uh, discourse about worms in the body, right, or chongzi, uh, that sort mm-hmm. of thing, there are these claims um, that the book talks about that powers of meditation allow this kind of super duper sensory um, experience in such a way that it actually is better than typical access to the material sensory world that would be available to people, you know, who were not working um, in and experiencing this world of Buddhist sensory perception. So this is actually claiming that it's actually better, right? Than yeah. Yeah. I I mean, it actually, it it completes the argument, right? So it it kind of is the proof for their argument. Um, Yeah. So, so yeah, the the Buddha saw microorganisms in water. I love um, that. And he also saw the existence of multiple galaxies, right? So um, what I find particularly interesting that, of course, both of these um, discoveries are based on, on optics, right? They're both things that you can see with the eye, 
that like you could see for yourself if you just have the right tool. And so it's, it's a very like, Buddhists can't deny that there's microorganisms because someone could be like, well, here, look, I have a microscope, check it out. Um, it's easier to say, well, you know, these theoretical things like, you know, I, well, anyway, uh, I, I don't want to get too far afield, but um, these are things that, you know, were discovered, um, especially microorganisms, you know, centuries before, but microscopes get brought in and Buddhists are able to see his Taishu famously when he's at Yang Wenhui Seminary. Yang Wenhui shows him through a microscope he got in England, like, look, check this out. Um, and Taishu is like, that's great. Oh, you know, I think I read something about that in the Buddhist scriptures. So this is the proof for Buddhists when they say that Buddhism allows a greater, uh, um, uh, a higher empiricism, right? Buddhism allows for a higher empiricism than is um, possible through uh, the unenlightened senses. The question scientists could ask is the question the opponent, people who don't believe this could be like, oh, well, prove it. And this is a piece of the proof then is, yes, look, the Buddha was aware of these things that y- you folks only discovered later. But because of his meditative powers, he was able to see this. Dude, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, <laughs> yeah. so moving, like, I, I could totally talk with you about the Buddha and microorganisms for the next, like for the rest of the hour. But because listeners may not be as fascinated as I am, <laughs> let's move on to some of the other chapters. So chapter four takes readers into debates about mind, about subjectivity and psychology in China during the 1920s. And this evokes actually some of the things that you were talking about um, earlier on in our conversation. So the chapter looks carefully at Buddhist notions of what's called consciousness only thought in this context. And then it takes us into some of the engagement with modern psychology of the Wuchang school that you were alluding to a little bit earlier on. So to start with, what is consciousness only thought and why is it so important here? So um, consciousness only thought is uh, one, uh, like Buddhist logic, it was a fairly, um, I don't want to say moribund, it was fairly overlooked school of, of Buddhist philosophy that comes from India, um, is also very prevalent in Tibet, um, is exists in China, but wasn't really popular until the late 19th, early 20th century. It's um, highly analytical, it's highly systematic, it's basically a kind of um, a soteriological psychology or a psychological soteriology. Um, it's it's a really refined way of talking about um, how consciousness occurs. Um, and they're really talking about kind of how sensation and thought and memory and karma kind of interact to produce consciousness. Um, a lot of Buddhists in Japan, in China, um, and to a certain extent in Korea really turn to this as a way of kind of rebutting or a way of thinking through Western philosophy. Um, But for the the Buddhists talking about science, it also furnished uh, tools for thinking about Western uh, kind of the developing field of psychology um, and even uh, to think about materialism and kind of the materialism idealism split they saw in Western philosophy. Um, so that's that's kind of what it is. It's uh, it was it got really popular with Buddhist intellectuals in the twenties and thirties. I'll say that like it was, it was it, a new uh, popularity it had never had before in China. I would say why is that? Why was it not popular? Or why did it, why did it become so popular in the period that we're looking at? Um, because it was very. I think because of its systematicity, like it it it, it felt. Um, it feels like Western philosophy in a way. There's very little in it that is um, that kind of uh, talks about soteriological elements of Buddhism that are a little more problematic from a Western philosophical standpoint. Um, it discusses Buddha nature, but in a kind of um, it's, it's not front and center. Um, it really is looking at the, the, the nature of mind. I think um, for Buddhists at the time who are reading Kant, who are reading um, William James, who are reading Bertrand Russell, right? They can find in consciousness only uh, ideas and ways of thinking 
that feel like they're on par in terms of rigor um, to some of these Western modes of thinking. And that was very attractive because it was native, right, in a sense. Cool. Thank you. So how do we get from there to um, sort of the, the next issue of the engagement with modern psychology, right? So you've talked a little bit about the engagement with Western philosophy, but you make the point in this chapter um, that there was a, a pretty intense engagement with modern psychology as well. Yeah. You indicate this in the Wuchang School, and this is a school for listeners, um, just to remind them, um, that has to do with the, this Wuchang Buddhist seminary that was founded at the beginning of our conversation by Taishu. So can you talk about that, the engagement for you, what's interesting about this engagement with modern psychology? Um, I think for me, the most interesting thing, and this is a point I try to kind of like really try to get across in the book is I find it interesting that um, Buddhists were also engaged in discussions about psychology, right? It, it wasn't, you know, in all these discussions of science, it wasn't like there was a group of people who knew what they were talking about over here. And then there were some Buddhists who were kind of listening to them and chatting and saying nonsense in the background. Everybody in China was in, enmeshed and kind of immersed in this discussion of all these different things. Um, psychology is a great test or a great example because the field of psychology was very new in the whole world, right? The, the, you know, it's not like there's a developed field in the West that then gets transplanted to China and by some experts. And then you have some Buddhists who are shooting their mouths off. Rather it's that, that people are developing psychology. It's, it's happening in China Buddhists are in the mix in these conversations. What what do these ideas mean? Um, how can we think about some of these problems in psychology? We've, we've just discovered that memory is not something that actually is located in one part of the brain. Well, then how does that work with models of kind of the mind is the brain and the notion of specific locations in the brain, you know, being part of specific activities, which, you know, we're kind of still working on some of these questions. And I think there's a lot, you know, we've, we've, we keep learning a lot about how the human mind works in conjunction with the brain. But, you know, in the twenties, it was, it was, it was wide open. So people were having all kinds of talk, all kinds of discussions about um, these psychological ideas. And it's, it's during this period that behaviorism um, starts to rise, right? And it's a very materialistic approach to psychology, but there's, there's other approaches like psychology. William James's kind of introspective psychology is still a live option for many people, um, both in the West and in China. And Buddhists are kind of on board with that. Um, they don't like the rise of behaviorism, but it's behaviorism hadn't conquered psychology, which it did a few decades later. Um, and so I find it really interesting that uh, I, I just that that. So much is in flux and Buddhists are right there in it, you know, you know, throwing elbows and trying to figure stuff out. Mm -hmm. So not only are they throwing elbows and trying to figure stuff out <laughs> in the context of psychology, but as we move into the next chapter, this is also happening in the context of evolution and evolutionism. And this mm -hmm. fifth chapter looks at Buddhist discourse on social evolutionism. And this is a discourse that became popular in China in the last decade of the 19th century. Now you talk here about all, like, I would love to actually just spend an hour on this chapter. Okay. <laughs> um, we can, but I'll, I'll kind of summarize a little, then open out a little bit. So you talk here about the ways that Buddhists are, or Buddhist writers that you're looking at are critiquing notions of social evolutionism mm. insofar as these notions seem to presume the need for violence and competition. Yeah. Now they're identifying this um, sort of social evolutionism as the kind of ethical position of modern materialist science. So this is really important. And in the writings that you take us into, um, as they're engaging this ethical position, they're reminding readers of the impact of this science um, in terms of the devastation of the First World War. Um, as you talk about, um, I think what the chapter calls the methods of killing that science had devised in the context of war. Yeah. Um, so here, as you're, um, as you've kind of alluded to a little bit earlier, they're not rejecting Darwinian theory, right? They're not saying Darwinian yeah. theory is wrong. They're rejecting what seems to be a kind of ethic, uh, what you call here a, pres a prescriptive ethic that's based on it, and they're suggesting an alternative. Can you talk a little bit about what you take to be um, kind of most important and interesting about the way that they're engaging this as an ethical position and, and what they're replacing it with? 
Um, or really anything about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's, yeah, there's a lot going there. I mean, you, you can't write a book about a religion and science uh, with primarily the, the American audience in mind and not talk about evolution, right? Because that's, you know, I see this in my students, right? This, the, that's the first thing they want to know about. Um, I'm teaching a class on Buddhism this semester, and, you know, the, like the first day a student came up to me after class and was like, how do Buddhists feel about evolution? And the second day a student came up and said, how does Buddhists feel about same-sex marriage, right? So it was kind of like these are our contemporary issues that are kind of an index of how how a religion operates within kind of, you know, against certain values um, and ideas. Uh, and, and certainly the same thing is happening in the 20s and 30s um, with, with evolution. I, I think the biggest thing that, that I take away from how they talk about it, and this is something I observed, it was also observed um, independently by Justin Ritzinger, um, who's at Miami, who, who's written on this as well, um, is that Buddhists really do see social evolutionism as as an option right it's it's not it's not a description of how the world always works it's actually an option that societies choose to pursue and they're arguing this is as buddhists this is not how we should live this is not how we should see the world we should live according to the ethic of compassion of selfless uh service of care for others who are suffering um, and not choose to pursue um, a, a social, a, as a whole society, right? Again, the context for these discussions is it's not really the individual. It's the whole society of China. Um, we, we can't go down this road of getting into the competition game, mm-hmm. um, which is, I mean, it's, you know, I think I would say that the, the notion of social evolutionism is still very prevalent in China today, right? When you talk to young people about living in a market society, right? They talk about, it's all about competition, right? And some people will get weeded out, you know, right? Like this is, it's just, people talk about this. And so it was very much from this period that that gets, in, in, that notion really kind of takes root. And the Buddhists are really fighting against that because they don't think it's, they don't think it's necessary and they definitely don't think it's desirable. Now you were raising the importance um, in the context of what you were saying of contemporary issues and engagement with contemporary issues. And as we come to the end of the book and we near um, the conclusion of our conversation, you also bring us um, out into some contemporary issues. And so we'll get there um, in a few minutes, but let's sort of find our way there um, by exploring the chapter a little bit. So this last body chapter of the book, chapter six, looks at the impact of science on how Buddhists discussed spiritual self-cultivation, as you put it in the book. Now, some people um, who are writing the stuff that's um, coming up in this chapter are arguing that Buddhists should study science as part of their Buddhist practice. Now, they're suggesting, or some of them are suggesting, that the Buddha had actually recommended that aspiring bodhisattvas study math and logic and philology, and that math and logic and philology could actually help alleviate the suffering of others. Okay, so this is really um, a really interesting kind of set of issues, and I wanted to, we won't have time to really talk about it in depth, but I wanted to mark this for listeners um, because it's a really kind of interesting part of what's happening here. Did you want to speak to that at all before we move on? Um, I mean, I think it's part of the whole uh, Buddhist view that science and Buddhism are not in opposition. Mm-hmm. Right? They, it, it's the the person who wants to be a benefit to the world must master many skills, mm-hmm. um, and they include math and, and science. Mm-hmm. That's right. Now, as we move, though, to the end of the chapter, the chapter actually closes with a study that has, and, and you explicitly address it in this way, um, pretty interesting relevance to some contemporary conversations about um, scientific study of brains and sort of Buddhist practices. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this is interesting, right? The chapter closes with a study of a, of a 1932 book that argued that Buddhist meditation led to the production of a kind of super adrenaline in the <laughs> yeah. body, right? And the author of this book is suggesting that scientists should conduct experiments 
on meditators. Now, this is 1932. And yeah. if this sounds familiar to listeners at all, um, this is in part because this is really anticipating more recent discussions, as you show here, about scientific study of the bodies and the brains of meditators. So this is probably a good topic to kind of bring us to our conclusion. Can you talk about what you think is most interesting about um, about these studies, but also about the fact that this, you know, this study in 1932 in this period that you're talking about is anticipating a lot of really interesting, uh, most more recent conversations. So what do you think is most interesting about this constellation of, of issues that are just coming up? I think um, one, one parallel I see between that particular work from 1932, which like several other dozen works was simply called Buddhism and science. Um, I think one one thing that's interesting about that work, and also one of the reasons why that work I don't think became very popular in China, is that um, the index of truth for that author was a measurable physiological effect, right? And I think a lot of the studies today about meditators, scientific studies. I mean, they're definitely, they, they have to measure what they can measure. So there has to be some physiological, physical effect. But they're also measuring kind of psychological well-being, um, which is one place where it goes a little beyond what this guy was talking about in 1932. Um, but I think that for both those studies and, and um, this particular one from, gosh, was 85 years ago, uh, there is a desire to have... Buddhism be validated by scientific, demonstrable empirical scientific findings, um, right? That that for this guy, right, and given the context of when he's talking, he has to say Buddhism is valuable, and it's valuable because it has these measurable physiological effects on metabolism and blood pressure. Um, and if you could just put someone in an X-ray machine, you could see that their brain is different, right? And that's kind of the same argument that some people today make. Um, you know, meditation, uh, you know, beyond the soteriological Buddhist value of meditation, that somehow meditation mindfulness, right, writ large, is is beyond Buddhism, is valuable for our well-being, our happiness, um, our blood pressure, you know, all these kind of things. So I think there's a lot of parallels there between these two, these two things. So now that we've come sort of toward the conclusion or at to the conclusion of our conversation, yeah. Eric, there's so much that we could talk about, right? I'm, I've already um, marked um, a few moments along the way, but there's a lot more in the book um, that is waiting for listeners who become readers, um, hopefully in the days and weeks and months to come. Given that, though, is there anything in particular that didn't come up or that we didn't address um, that you would want to uh, put on the table or mention for listeners? Um, there's, I guess, yeah, since we've talked, there's one thing that... Uh, I would say for my colleagues in Buddhist studies, mm -hmm. um, in that introductory chapter, there is that section on the kind of the history of science in China in the early 20th century, the professionalization. Mm -hmm. um, I think that would be valuable. Um, I don't know if I did it well. <laughs> I hope I did it well, right? Like I, I talk about kind of how the arc of the professionalization of science occurred at the same time that Buddhism was trying to establish its place in, in China. Mm -hmm. um, and I, uh, Adam Chow, um, who's at Cambridge, he, he has a, I heard him give a paper and he talked about this process of in China, what he calls sectorization, that, uh, that Chinese society has been kind of sectorized. And so there's certain sectors in each each niche is kind of like does its own thing. And I think from the teens that had not happened. And by the time you get to the thirties, society had been sectorized. So Buddhism had a place, science had a place, but it, it, it was a process that had to be worked out. And that's kind of what the book is reflecting is how Buddhists did that at the same time that scientists were doing that. And they had to kind of do it by talking to each other or about each other. So now that the book is out, What's next for you? What are you working on now? What's your current sort of research and writing taking you into? The book is, is really the end of this project. Um, I've been working on it for, as I said, uh, over you know, 10 years now. And I'm, 
I'm kind of done with it. Um, I think I think I've said what uh, I have to say about it. Um, I may revisit at some point, but um, in particular, I'm kind of leaving the science part. Um, I'm continuing to look at Buddhism, but my current project is having me kind of step back and go back to that East Asian Buddhist focus that I had. Um, a little bit. Uh, I'm looking at the history of one particular school of Buddhism in the 20th century, of, uh, of one particular school of Chinese Buddhism, and that's the, um, in Chinese, it's Huayan uh, school, the Avatamsaka school. It's a, a kind of important school of Buddhist philosophy. It's not institutionally a separate school, and people in my field know why I have to, why, you know, what I'm talking about that. Um, but I'm, I'm really lo- interested in looking at kind of transnational connections, especially inter, uh, you know, connections between Japan, China, and Korea. Um, there's a lot that's been done about Japan and China. Um, and some has been done about Japan and Korea, mostly in the context of um, colonialism uh, and resistance and those kind of things. Um, but I'm trying to return to some of my, I'm trying to get back to using Korean language for uh, research, and I'm trying to bring Korea and China as a connection uh, in, and also just look at all these three countries and see how is their shared response to modernity affect the development of some of these psycho- uh, uh, philosophical schools? What's actually going on? Who's listening to who? Um, can we divide Chinese, Korean, and Japanese Buddhism, or are there ways of thinking about them together? So I'm starting that project. I'm going on sabbatical next year, starting this fall. So I'm oh, hoping. You. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yeah, I just um, I just got tenure uh, at my school this year. So um, Ooh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. The, the book came out, so it's, um, it's very exciting. So I'm hoping that next year on sabbatical, I'll be really kind of getting work done on a monograph on the history, particularly of the Chinese uh, Huayan school in the 20th century. Well, Mazel Tov a million times over. Congrats Thanks. on tenure. Thanks Congrats so on the sabbatical. Congrats on the book. Thanks. And best of luck with your research. And thanks for taking time away from that to talk with me today. Oh, thanks so much, Carla. This was great. Thank you. I appreciate you making time to talk with me about my book. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. And we'll see you next time.